Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning, we start a series that's going to carry us through the summer, and we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. It's an Old Testament book, and if you're not familiar with it right now, hopefully by the end of the summer you're going to be well acquainted with it, with the stories that are in it. It's a historical book in the Old Testament, and I want to just give us a little bit of an outline as to what has happened chronologically in the Bible from Genesis to the point at which we're going to pick up and study. In Genesis, we know... We should know, many of us that have been in small groups, what takes place in the first 25, 26 chapters. We have creation, the fall, the flood, and then we're introduced to this character that we've been studying in small group, Abraham. And Abraham uh, has three sons, and those three sons um, eventually take us into the story of Joseph, and Joseph takes us into Egypt, and we didn't get that far in small group this year, but Lord willing, in a couple more years, we're going to get there, right? Yeah. I'm looking at the guy I want to write it right now, so (laughs) nothing like putting a guy on the spot. Uh, We get into Exodus, and Exodus, Exodus is just that. It's the story of Israel being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And then we get to Leviticus, which deals with the moral and ceremonial law. And in Numbers, we have the story of Um, the 12 spies being sent out by Moses into this promised land, this land that was promised to Abraham hundreds of years in the past. And they go out and they search the land and they bring back a bad report saying, the giants there are are too great for us. We can't deal with that. Yeah, it has milk and honey and, and wonderful things, but we are afraid. And because of their failure to have faith, they, they don't go into the land. And so they wander around in the wilderness to all, tell all the adults who had, were alive at that time had died off. And then Deuteronomy recaps a history, the history that we're told previously. And in the end, Israel's great leader, Moses, dies, and leadership is handed over to a man named Joshua, who was one of the two faithful spies that came back and said, no, let's take this land. And then the book of Joshua is about God's people finally entering that land and starting to to take it, to capture it. That takes us up to the book of Judges. And I would ask that you stand with me as we read just the beginning verse from the book of Judges. It's going to serve as our text this morning. Judges 1, 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would give us soft hearts attentive minds to what your word says to us this morning. I pray that you would keep away distraction. I pray that my words would be faithful to your word and that you would give us your Holy Spirit in great measure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our passage this morning, verse 1 of Joshua 1, immediately highlights a radical twofold transition that is taking place in the nation of Israel. Twofold transition. First, we're told that their faithful and godly leader, Joshua, the man who had had Moses' blessing and had been commissioned by Moses to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, has now died. He's not alive anymore. He's, he's left the people of Israel. That's a transition. And Israel is really now, at this point, really starting to dig in and fight for the land that had been promised to them. You see, they started into that promised land with Joshua, and they marched around Jericho, and the walls came down. And yet, it's at this point, it's in this book, where they really have to dig in, and they really have to persevere in driving that sled forward and really taking the land. So this is a twofold transition that we are a part of right now, we're, we're reading about right now. How will it go? How will the Israelites respond to this transition? Well, the reality is that transitions have been a part of Israel's life ever since Israel was Abraham. And the reason is that transitions, nobody likes change. Change is uncomfortable. Change necessitates faith on our part, right? We don't like change all that much. And so God, if you think about it, has injected a whole lot of transition into Israel's history in the past, from Abraham leaving his homeland and going to a land that God was going to direct him to, to being a single uh, husband without children and then having this son born to him. And then you think a little bit further out and you see Jacob has 12 sons born to him. These are changes happening in the life of Israel. They're uprooted and taken to Egypt like we already mentioned. And they find favor in Egypt, right? They left their homeland because of the famine. They find favor in Egypt. And then over time... That family that was 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, start to grow and have families of their own and they proliferate. And there's a couple other changes that take place. One, the nation of Israel grows, grows huge. There are, there are many people living in Egypt. And two, we're told that the leader, the pharaoh of Egypt at that time did not remember Joseph and really didn't care much about Israel. That, that people that were highly favored in the beginning have now grown into a threat. And so what happens? They go from being favored in Joseph's day to being enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt. Then, of course, Moses brings deliverance, the deliverance of God. And they're freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're taken out into the wilderness. And it's this point where they really receive their nationhood, right? They've gone from a family to a huge family into this nation that is no longer enslaved. They go from city slickers to nomads too, don't they? That's one of the transitions they really didn't do too well with. They had a lot of complaining out in the wilderness. Why do we have to be out here where there's no food or water? Take us back to Egypt where at least they fed us. At least maybe they'd kill us, but we wouldn't perish by thirst or by hunger. Transitions. Not used to living on their own in the wilderness. Then you have Moses dying. We already highlighted that. And then... In this book, they're really going from being wanderers in the wilderness to fighters and and conquerors and having a land that's their own to settle in. They're no longer going to be wandering around. 
These are all, we may take it for granted or we may not think about it very much when we read the scripture, but these are all really big changes. You think about the fact that for 40 years your family's identity has been in living in tents and packing them up every few days. Try and imagine that the church camping trip, we didn't hear about it because I think the signups are closed, but the church camping trip, how many are planning to go? Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us. Imagine that for 40 years and then you move into your first home. That's a radical transition. So transitions have been all through in the scripture. As we enter the book of Judges, we are entering into another vital but by no means final time of transition. What is God's command to Israel? What is it they're told to do? They're told to simply finish what they, were start, what they have started doing, to keep driving out the inhabitants and to settle in it, to cultivate it, to make it their own. Really, they're doing in this promised land what God had told Adam and Eve to do in the land of Canaan, to subdue it and conquer it to God's glory. They're to keep faithfully worshiping and loving and living for the one true God. They aren't to intermarry and not to have any intermarriages with the, with the ladies or the men of the pagan nations that live there. They're not to adopt those people's forms of worship. That was, in fact, the reason why God had told them to obliterate everyone who lived there, because God knew their and our weakness to sin, right? So he said, have nothing to do with them, clean slate, drive them all out, don't let any remain, conquer and settle the land. And at the beginning of Joshua, the book that comes before the book that we are going to study this summer, God had given them very specific directions about what to do and how they were going to do it. So we need to pay attention to this as we set our sights to the rest of the book throughout the summer. God said, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, even as far as the great sea, toward the settling of the sun, will be your territory. Note the specificity of God's promise. My, Aliyah and I are in the process of purchasing a new house, and one of the weird things about the house is that it shares a driveway with the neighbor. And that can be a little bit troublesome at points. We're not expecting it to be, but you hear stories of that sort of thing causing issues long term. One of the things that was highlighted to us is the survey that the prior owner, the person who, it was, a, it was a shared property, it was all basically one property, and somebody split it and divided it into two, and it still has one drive. And one of the things that they had to do before selling the property was to get it surveyed, and, and they have this picture that was presented to us showing us exactly where our boundary line is and the neighbor's boundary line is, where our yard stops and the new neighbor's yard starts, because our driveway is on their yard, and as we go to make this home our own, we want to know where our property line is. You know, you don't want to be having to guess with that sort of thing. So we have this drawing that illustrates 35 feet from the corner of this building and 25 feet from this yard post, exactly where our, ter- our, our territory is at this new property. God's very specific here. God's very specific. He, he tells them exactly where their land is. He has given them specific geographical landmarks and said, this is yours 
I'm giving it to you. As the Israelites are moving into a new land, they do not have to guess about where their land begins and where it ends, which is theirs and which is their neighbor's. They don't have to have those questions. They don't say, is this part of our land? Should, do we need to conquer that city? Do we need to go that far? God has been very specific. And then God immediately tells them how it's going to be possible that they are going to be able to capture this land and subdue it with success with success. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all of the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. Do not turn to it, to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Listen here, listen. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So they're to speak it. But you shall meditate on it, you think on it, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So they have their words, their mind, and their actions all combined. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God gives specific directions to Joshua and the people, which provide us with a yardstick to measure their progress in Joshua chapter 1. God has been very clear about how they're going to achieve what he's calling them to. Three times he has said, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. You see, it was God's power that was going to win the day. It was his arm that was going to fight against the nations that he was calling them to inhabit. Now, did this mean it wasn't going to be hard for the nation of Israel? Did it mean that they wouldn't have to strive and sweat? Did this promise mean that they would never have to bury any of their friends along the way? No, it didn't. It didn't. Of course not. That's why God is telling them to be strong and courageous. (sighs) Not because there wasn't any threat, but because there was real threat, real danger. But there was also the shadow of the Lord and his promise that his shadow was going to cover them. They might have thought they were standing in a dark spot because of the enemies, and they they didn't realize that what God was saying is, no, you're going to be in my shadow. I will have my hand protecting you. The other instruction that God gives to ensure success is that the book of the law, his writings to them, not depart from their mouths. They are to read it, and they aren't just to read it mindlessly or out of pure routine, but they're to meditate on it day and night. Why? To what end? Is this a a binary transaction? I read the Bible every day and I'm, I'm all right with God? Of course not. They read it so that they might obey it. God says that the reason that they're to spend this time reading and meditating is so that they might obey all the things that he has commanded them. That's the reason. But was the, mat, what, but was the problem really that they wouldn't remember? Was he saying read it night and day so you don't remember? Of course, generations forget 
And we'll read in a couple chapters that the people of Israel did forget the God, their God because their parents actually failed to teach it to them. You remember in, I think it's maybe 34 of Deuteronomy, Moses is on Mount Sinai with God, and he says, teach the people this song because uh, this song is going to help them not forget about me, about what you've come through, about what I've said I want from you. So it is possible to forget, but really is the reason God's saying read it night and day so that we don't forget? I don't think so. I don't think so. How many of them would have forgotten the Ten Commandments? Was it simply a matter of remembering them? If so, why does God find fault with Cain after he rose up and murders his brother? Of course, the Ten Commandments weren't given at that point, and yet Cain was very aware that his murder was wrong and an offense to God. So it's not simply a matter of forgetting or not knowing. Remember, in Deuteronomy 6, God says these words. He says, these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk about them when you rise up and when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. So it's not just a matter of remembrance, though, here. The fact is that you and I remember the things that we love. You think about the things that you allow your life to be shaped by. You meditate on the desires of your heart. And those desires inform your actions. This is what is so clearly illustrated in the story of Peter hopping out of the boat and running to Jesus. When his eyes are set on Christ, when his mind is thinking on Christ, he sees him out on the water and he says, come to me, he says, he jumps in. His mind is captivated with the power of God and the glory of God and of his Savior. But what happens as his mind is torn and he hears the thunder and sees the lightning and the, and the swell of the waves, his attention is pulled from that Savior to, to the thing that's threatening him, and his, his actions, he starts doubting, and, and it affects him in a visceral, in a visceral way. Uh, we know this. I could, I could try and illustrate this in, in, in different ways other than just Peter. Uh, what we think about, the things that dominate our mind, shape our actions. So if you discover a new hobby, you're very aware of things you were never aware of before, right? Like, I know that for some people in our congregation, <clears throat> I, well, I won't say the older people. It's younger people, too. Any pickleball fans around here? Yeah, I know, Josh. I was just talking to you. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I see you. Uh, you know, what was pickleball five years ago? Nothing. I don't know, right? Nothing. But uh, you get a new hobby, say pickleball, and then you're driving around town, and every park you pass by, you're looking for pickleball courts. You're looking for the tennis court that's been reconditioned into a pickleball court, aren't you? You're like, hmm, oh, well, okay. It's affecting your actions, this new desire of your heart, what's on your mind, your hobby, is affecting, it's like, I'm going to go buy that park and white house and see how nice those new courts are. Okay, we, we get this. Uh, when you buy a new car, suddenly you notice that car everywhere on the road, don't you? It's because it's on your mind. Hey, my next new car, hey, that guy, they got the same car, oh, you know? Um, you know, for me, we got a house with a big yard. I could have cared less about tractors and mowers until about two weeks ago. 
Right now it's like I'm driving around, it's like, hmm, a rotting tractor in somebody's farm field. I'm going to see if they want to sell that to me. <laughs> you know? I'm stopping and making stops on the side of the road because of this. It's just on my mind. This is the way we work. It's, it happens in relationships too. You start liking somebody and then suddenly all these things start reminding you of that person and affecting the way you act and think. Advertising agencies understand that what you see with your eyes and what you think about has a huge implication on your pocketbook has a huge implication on the way you live your life, your actions, your spending. God says, let the things of me, let the things of me consume your mind, your attention, your devotion, and obey. So this is the game plan for a glorious and wonderful, fruitful inheritance in the promised land that's overflowing with milk and honey, that has clusters of grapes so big that it took multiple men to carry them on a stick. In other words, they're to do the very same thing that Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament book of, well, Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, but to fix their hope. To fix their hope. Not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies with all good things to enjoy. That's what what God's saying in the Old Testament. Fix your eyes on me, you're going into this land. Fix your eyes on me and trust that I will provide for you. Israel isn't to fix their eyes upon their own might. They aren't to fix their eyes on the power of the enemy either. They're to fix their eyes. They're to meditate on God and to trust him to supply them with every good thing that they need, including victories over nations and armies that they have absolutely no business coming up against from a human perspective. But this is like a bad spoiler alert because I've been, we read verse 1 of chapter 1 and now I'm going to jump to the end and read you the last verse of the book because these things really frame in for us the rest of what we're going to learn about this summer. I'm going to jump to the end and let you know that Judges is not a history of victorious conquest or of faithfulness on Israel's part. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua, that was what we stood and listened to at the beginning, And if we fast forward through the book to the 21st chapter, to the last verse, there's a sobering statement that says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Judges, I think I've said Joshua, forgive me. Judges chapter 1, verse 1 says, Joshua dies. Judges 21, last verse says, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the, that is the narrative arc of the book of, of Joshua, of Judges. Uh, Judges is not a book that I would say gets a lot of attention. And I think that part of the reason that it can, uh, for this is the fact that it can be viewed as a downer. I, I was we're actually thinking about this summer, this past week, and I was, um, somebody saw me with my Bible open and, and started talking with me. And they said, so where are you preaching? I said, Judges. They said, ooh. And I think that that is fairly honest. Um, but the, year, the, the years that are covered in this book are fairly dark years for the people of Israel. It's, it's commonly referred to as the downward spiral. People turn their backs on God, and God gives them over to oppression and persecution, and then they don't like that very much, so they repent. And God sends them a judge, and they're restored, and they have a period of time where they are more faithful, and then that cycle repeats and repeats. When we hear the word judge, 
So we're going to hear it throughout the summer. I just want to point this out to us right now. When we hear the word judge, we most commonly think of somebody who arbitrates um, or decides cases between two people or two groups. This is the case with some of the judges. They no doubt served in this capacity um, for the people of Israel. Um, They were sort of like governors in different areas throughout the territory of Israel. And so this is no doubt the case. We'll read that Deborah actually has a tree that's, you know, in her honor, and that's where the people would come to, and she would sort of decide things for them. But we are told in chapter 2, verse 16, that what they did was far more than just judge. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says the Lord raised up judges to deliver, deliver the people of Israel from the hands of those that plundered them. And so when we think of the judges, let's not just think of Judge Judy, okay? It's not accurate. They were sent as deliverers. Deliverers that point us to Christ. Lesser saviors. Flawed, we'll see, very flawed. But men, and in Deborah's case, a woman who points us to the perfect sinless lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The lamb, he says about himself, if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. He sets us free. And so in a small way, these men and women in this Old Testament book of of judges are, are, are pointing us to Christ and smaller deliverers giving the people freedom. So the broad theme is rebellion, punishment, repentance, deliverance over and over and over again. Um, While this book may not be the most popular book to preach from, and while it contains a number of unsettling stories, it it, it contains a vital message for us in this time. In the final few chapters, uh, it says actually four times that in that day, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So what we're going to see is that there's an intro to this book and then there's a narrative about all these judges and then at the end there's sort of a prologue with a couple other stories in it. And once you get into that end part, uh, four times there's this condemnation in this statement that no one did what God wanted, they all did what they wanted to do. How did it get to this place? How did the nation of Israel descend this low? Did they not know what God wanted for them? Had God been unclear in his expectations? Had he been ambiguous in his instructions? Of course not. We already read a couple verses from the book of Joshua. We read the instructions that God gave the people. He couldn't have been more clear. So the issue is not that they were left to fend for themselves and they did the best as they knew how, which is often the way we want to think about ourselves. Right? I did as best as I could. Mm Mm-mm. That's what these people would have said, too. It's not that. No, God had said that he would be with them and he would give them the land if they, three things, were strong and courageous, read and meditated on the word of God, and were then careful to do what he said. It wasn't that hard. And they and we like to make God's word hard, don't we? Complication helps our case, right? Where things are confusing, like I signed a lot of documents recently, and I'm always skeptical of those 88-page documents that the guy just says, sign here, you know? Not that I want to read all of them, but, you know, complication makes things confusing, and it can help our case depending on what side of it we're on, right? 
We always want to do that with God. It's really not that hard. God wasn't laying out anything that was too complicated, right? I can understand it. If I can understand what he was saying, anyone can understand what he was saying, right? God promised them that as long as they did these things, they would have prosperity and find success. He would protect them. He would provide for them. He would prosper them. Think about that word. He would prosper them. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive, right? Cliché. But that's what a lot of us want. God said, I will give it to you. I'll give it to you. So when the author of Judges says the people did what was right in their own eyes, it wasn't that they didn't know what God had said. They knew what he said, but they were convinced. They were convinced that it wouldn't work. They didn't believe God. They wanted peace, they wanted unity, they wanted happiness, they wanted victory, they wanted prosperity, but they didn't trust that God's way was the way that was going to get them that thing or those things. As we'll see, the long slippery slope downward isn't something that happens overnight, but it did happen quickly because they bought into the lie that God would not lead them to happiness. They thought that God's ways would bring defeat. They believed that God was not calling them to something that was going to fulfill them. They thought that God was crazy. When we hear that the people did what was right in their own eyes, we should hear this as an echo of Genesis. Think about this for a moment. They did what was right in their own eyes, and then if we remember the very beginning of Genesis that, again, we studied in small group, what, what is said? What's said is that when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took and ate and gave to her husband also, and he ate. So what's the theme? Eve did what was right in her own eyes. The nation of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. We are no different. We live in a day where the most accurate diagnosis is that we are a people that does what we want. We do what we want. We do what is right in our own eyes without any regard really to God to his word, and I'm not just speaking broadly here of culture. I'm not trying to attack the culture. Of course, the Canaanites didn't care what God thought. I'm talking about us. We can scoff and we can turn up our noses at the book of Judges. How could Israel fumble on the finish line? Come on. They were right there. They'd already taken Jericho. How dare Gideon test God and say, if you do this. I will then do this. How dare him? How could Jephthah sacrifice his daughter? Because he had promised that he would sacrifice the very first thing that came out of his door to greet him if God granted him a victory. He didn't vow to sacrifice his daughter. He said, God, win this victory for me and I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. How could he dare do that? How could the Benjamites treat women so badly? How could even some of the judges be caught up in such sexual sin? While these ac actions are wicked and they should make us squirm, we also need to recognize that we're living in a day that is no different. We have sacrificed more than 63 million children to the God of have it your own way through abortion. That is the land that we live in. We have instant access to every kind of sexual perversion 
through the anonymity of our phones or our other devices. That is the nation that we live in. And that isn't just the nation. We are all guilty. We have fights. We have factions and infighting. We have selfish ambition. We have scheming. We rebel against authority. We do. We have abuses of power. What better example of doing what's right in our own eyes is there than the sexual chaos and rebellion, not just against God's word, but against the very nature that much of the church is just embracing? So this is the culture that we live in, and this is, this is the church that we're, we love, and we're trying to, to beautify as Christ works through us, right? And these are the things we need to, to fight first in our own lives if we're going to be any good fighting in other people's lives, right? These are the things. These are the battles of our day, are they not? So listen, do not look down your nose and sneer at the book of Judges. If we are shocked and offended by the history that it contains, then we are the emperor who didn't know he didn't have any clothes on. We are blind to the day in which we live, and we are blind to the, also the depravity of our hearts. If we look at this book and say, how could he, how could he, how could he? We really are blind to our own selves. We do not understand the depth of our own sinfulness, nor do we appreciate, nor do we appreciate the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much, and he who has been forgiven little loves little. I don't think that we really believe Jesus when he says that there is no sin that is not common to men. In other words, all sins are common. And to the extent that we have the ability to mock or sneer at others because of their sin, whether in real life today as we interact with other people or whether we're looking back at a, at a very real, true life history of people in the Scripture, we, to the extent that we can mock and sneer, we honestly have a target painted on our chest that says, hit me, I'm open. I am open. Because pride blinds us to this reality. Pride blinds us to the reality that sin crouches at our door. So be humble. Be humble. As we go through this book, let's cultivate humility in our hearts, okay? Be humble and be careful. Judges is not some far-out crazy character. This is where every nation and every church descends. This is, this is the path when we take our eyes off of God's Word. This is just it. God, this is such a helpful book because it just, it shows us the future. It is prophetic. It shows us if we act in this way, this is where it leads. When we fail to know God's word, to meditate on it, to live by it. And we are part, we, we, we live in a time that has neglected the Bible, but we have to, guys. We don't have to hide God's word in our heart when we have smartphones where we can pick up and find any verse we want that we kind of remember a couple words from. So there's real lessons to learn here for ourselves. Why preach to anyone else? We're seeking to grow ourselves. So there's no sin that's not common to men, and that includes all of us. Um, this doesn't mean, though, that we need to live in fear of sin. We're going to go through a book that has a lot of gnarly stories. This is not fear-mongering. We aren't to live in, in fear of sin. God isn't honored when we go through life fearing sin, right? We love him, we fear God, and we flee from sin, right? We don't say, how close can I get without falling into it? We flee from sin, but we don't fear sin. That's not my point. We have been victorious in the person and the work of Jesus Christ over sin and death. That's what the scripture teaches. 
He shares his victory and his power with us. So we aren't to live in fear of strain. We are to be strong and courageous, just like God told Israel. Our courage is no more rooted, though, in our own moral superiority or high ground than Israel's victory over the nations was in their military strength, right? Like, we don't have anything to offer to God here except our obedience, seeing his goodness and just being overwhelmed by it. Our courage is rooted in the power and the promises of Jesus Christ, the God who deliver us, delivers us and loves us, a God who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here's what I want to do here. I want to spend just a few minutes in closing talking about the glory of God and how wonderful he is. Israel did what was right in their own eyes because they did not believe that God's ways was wonderful and marvelous. They had lost sight of it. That's the reality. We've been talking about how they did what was right in their own eyes, and we have all these bad consequences. The spiritual lesson that can be derived from this book, and we are going to mine as we go through it, is that God's ways are good and wonderful, and God provides for us every good thing if we will obey. So the negative consequences show us a very positive lesson, don't they? Looked at it from the 180 degrees. Later this summer, we're going to get to the story of the well-known and final judge, Samson. And um, as I've been reading through the book and just thinking about it, it was a really interesting verse. I don't know if we'll spend a sermon on it later or not, but I wanted to read it to us right now. Samson's a miracle child, much like many of the other children in the Scripture, because we're told that Samson's father and mother, the mother was barren. She couldn't have children. She couldn't conceive. And so God sends the angel of the Lord to her and says, you're going to bear a son. She comes and tells her husband, Manoah. Manoah is excited, but it's not a whole lot to go on. It's just a message. So a little while later, the angel of the Lord comes back to her and and says it again. And she says, wait here. I'm going to get my husband. So the angel of the Lord waits, and Manoah comes to her, uh, to him rather, the angel of the Lord, and says, is this so? Let me read it. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? What's your name? So that when your word comes to pass, we might honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask me my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. That's it. That's the response. Why do you ask me my name, seeing that it's wonderful? I don't have to prove my glory and my wonder to you. It's right before your eyes. Why do you ask me my name? The name of the Lord is wonderful. His ways are marvelous. His plans are perfect. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Our our lives will testify to whether or not we truly believe this. I know that these are easy statements for us all to nod along with, but the, the proof comes when you hit some of those hard transitions, doesn't it? Some of those hard places in your life. That's where the proof comes out. If you like working on houses like me, you can tell whatever. If you're buying saw blades... You, they can say whatever they want on the package, but the proof is in the pudding. When you actually start digging into metal or something, 
That's when you can really tell if it's a good blade or a bad blade, right? Same in our lives. It's when we, it's when we start having to dig in, having to cut, when it's, when it's no longer hanging on the shelf, but we're, we're using it, and it's, and it's rough, and things, parts of the blade are chipping off. That's when you can tell good blade versus a bad blade. Every single one of us is like the Israelites in the day that Joshua died, right now. We're all in a very similar spot. Don't train wreck your transitions. Don't train wreck your transitions. God puts us through them. They're hard. He knows it. It's for his glory. It's for our testing and trial. Don't train wreck your transitions. We all have real challenges in very real lives. Be faithful. Some of you are young, and the transitions you're in right now are you're wondering if you're going to be accepted by the other students at your school. I remember that day. It's hard. It really is. For that spot in life, it's, it, it, there's no sense in comparing hardship. It's stupid. It's a hard position to be in. Am I going to find a girl that is ever attracted to me? Am I going to find a, a, a guy that is attracted to me? Transitions, awkward stages of life. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to do what's right in your own eyes? Or are you going to do what's right as God has commanded? Some of you are empty nesters, and I know the transition is difficult, and you wonder if you are totally irrelevant. You go through life thinking, is there a place for me anymore? What is my purpose here? Does it even, is what I'm contributing, does it matter? I know it. I've heard it. You're in the middle of a transition. Be faithful. Of course those are lies from Satan. Continue in the work God has called you to do. Some of us are suffering from the loss of parents. And... There's nobody older than us in the family anymore, and the transition is now all eyes are on us, and we're having to carry a weight, an emotional weight, a leadership weight that we've never had to carry before. Are you going to be faithful to what God has called you to? We're blessed with having lots and lots of newly marrieds in this church. And marriage is wonderful. It's a wonderful gift from God. Yet it's really hard. The reality is most good things, truly wonderful things in life, aren't easy. Marriage is hard. What way are you going to go? Are you going to do what's right in your own eyes? Or are you going to be faithful to the simple, maybe sometimes we think overly simplistic ways of God? Right? It could be parenting teenagers. I'm not there yet. I'm aware that I have probably much humbling in my future. And yet, are you going to do what you think is best? Are you going to grab them and try and protect them and do all the things that we all want to do? Or are you going to trust God and stand on his word and let that be the thing that guides you? When everything in you says, no, 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 no. I think there's a better way. Your feet are, your knees are knocking. What are you going to do? Be faithful. God's name is wonderful and his ways are marvelous. God says, I'm going to take perfect care of you. I'm going to provide everything that you need. The only thing I want you to do is trust me 
and do what I've said. Uh, Trust me and believe me to do what I've said I would do. Obey me and prepare to be amazed. That's, that's my rendition of some of the text. But God is saying, prepare to be amazed by what I'll do. Of course it looks stupid. Of course it looks insane. Of course it looks crazy. Matt French was doing an awesome job this morning teaching us in Sunday school on the weakness of God. Weakness of God and what does it mean for God to be weak? It said he uses weak people and the cross and suffering and, 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 and something as weak as mercy to accomplish his will. Prepare to be amazed at what he will do through you if you're faithful. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Or will you trust your own perspective on life? Will you do what's right in your own eyes? Judges is a book of warning about the tragic results of seeking our own desires and doing what's right in our own eyes, but it is just as much, and listen to me here, this is not as apparent, but it is, it is right there in every story. It is just as much a book about the greatness of our God and about the glory of obedience. The glory of obedience. It is a book that shows time and time again the obedience and faith in what God has said and the fact that, that those things lead us to a life of confidence, a life of hope, fruit, victory, happy marriages, societies that are ordered the right way and many, many, many other blessings. The name of the Lord is wonderful. His ways are wonderful. And it is my hope and my prayer that throughout this summer, our minds would be conformed more to the mind of Christ and that we would surrender our wills to His, not just in sentiment, not just in some pithy statement, but actually day by day, surrendering our wills to His and that we would live by faith as opposed to sight. That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, have your way in our lives. We confess to you that so often we do what is right in our own eyes. And we pray that this would be a a time of growth and of humbling, of repentance in our lives and looking to you and finding in you the joy of salvation, the joy of obedience. It is not a burden, Lord. May our faith be strengthened. And Father, may we serve as a light in the midst of a dark time. May people know about us in the fact of the only fact that we stand on the rock of Christ and love him, love his word. Pray that this would be the case for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.